2: senior China correspondent for The Economist, based in Taipei. And I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, our Beijing bureau chief.
3: This week, in honor of the holidays, at Drum Tower, we're taking a break from the pandemic and from party politics. This is who I am, and this is how I'm going to connect to you, stranger in time and space. We're exploring one of the most famous poems in China, Chunwang, or Spring Landscape. It's written by the 8th-century Tang Dynasty poet Du Fu.
4: I think what comes across is, he's just like us. There's something really universal about it.
2: This poem, written over a thousand years ago, is still learnt by heart by every schoolchild in China. It's considered one of the greatest poems in the Chinese literary canon, yet it's relatively unknown outside China. We're asking, why is this poem still celebrated in China and so resonant
5: today? It was a tragic time for Chinese uh, history because uh, there was then the greatest civil war ever happened in China at the time millions of death and Du Fu was a witness to that
3: Is there something about the ambiguity of classical Chinese as a language that makes this poem difficult to translate but at the same time ideal for carrying multiple meanings We'll speak to an enthusiast for this poem from Britain. We'll speak to its translator in France and a scholar in the USA. And we'll ask, how close can outsiders get to this poem in translation? This is
2: Drumtap. From The Economist. Hi, David. How's it going?
3: Actually, I've been in London for the past few days. Uh, I flew out of a very chaotic, very odd feeling Beijing, suddenly numbers absolutely rising, lots of colleagues and friends with the virus wondering whether it's dangerous to have it now, whether be better to get it early rather than later when hospitals are overwhelmed. And we've been looking at some really shocking numbers in a model that our data colleagues at The Economist have put together, that because... The communist leadership really squandered so much this year. Instead of getting the vaccines rolled out, instead of stocking up antiviral drugs, this exit wave really looks like a kind of unplanned crashing out of those strict controls of zero COVID. And so I'm in London to see my family for the holidays to do some work in London, but really worried about friends and colleagues back in China.
2: It's really alarming. And I think one of the troubling things is that we have no clear grasp of the numbers of just how many cases uh, there are in Beijing. But it seems to me like almost everyone I know who hadn't been infected already has quickly gotten sick just in the last week. And then it also seems like almost everyone they know. So, I mean, that's anecdotal. But just the fact that that is everyone's experience, it's really worrying.
3: You know, Alice, most of the people we know in Beijing haven't been vaccinated at all since last year. So we we don't even know how much protection they still have. There's a sense that there's a really scary information vacuum out there. There's a contrast between the official death tolls. We had a couple of deaths, I think, reported recently for weeks. And yet colleagues of ours have spoken to crematoria staff in Beijing who say they've been working flat out because of COVID deaths. You have official scientists saying that it's like a cold, it's nothing to fear. And yet people are aware. People are getting really sick. And so The streets of Beijing are very empty. People are cautious. It's a really scary time. And that sense of the capital of China in chaos and and sort of under attack from an unseen enemy is actually at the heart of the poem we're going to look at this week. And for centuries, this voice of Du Fu, of a long dead poet, has offered really remarkable solace to Chinese readers. And that's what we're going to talk about, that classical literature is not just integral to sort of high Chinese culture. It's at the core of Chinese identity in good times and bad.
2: Every Chinese kid grows up, you know, learning Chinese poems. It's almost like learning how to speak. And, and this one poem in particular that we wanted to zoom in on, Chun Wang by Du Fu, that is something that most elementary school kids know by heart. In Chinese culture, you know, from the time you're four or five years old, you start memorizing this classical Chinese poetry, and you might not even know what it means because it requires a, a little bit of translation even just to turn the classical Chinese into ordinary Chinese.
5: 春望, 活泡伤和在,
2: That's why you'll even see, you know, cartoon videos that are very kid-friendly. First, you see all the characters laid out and it's being read very carefully. Um, and then they explain, okay, Chun Wang is a poem by one of these famous poets from the Tang Dynasty. And then you see there's this cartoon character of Du Fu. Basically, he is standing outside Chang'an, which is Xi'an today. And, you know, the city is burning. It's been attacked in a war. And he's,
1: you know, he's very sad.
2: The poem is all about Dufu seeing his hometown and his homeland destroyed. He looks at the city and he sees that the mountains and the rivers are still there, but the city itself is broken and he sees that the city is overgrown with grass. Do you remember learning that poem at school? It's funny that you ask that because I was thinking about it and I can't recall, I can't recall exactly when I learned it, but when I saw it, I saw the first line, he zai, and then I was like, oh, yeah, that poem, it almost feels like it's just always been in my head. But I'm sure I I read it at some point somewhere or maybe in one of these books of like 300 tongue poems that parents make their kids read. And they they have their kids recite them at holiday parties to (laughs) impress the adults.
3: You know, as a British kid, you do learn poetry, but it's kind of a literature lesson. We celebrate poetry in the West, but somehow, at one remove from kind of everyday adult or political life, you know, you console people at a funeral, or it's for inspiring people at a grand occasion. So remember the amazing poem that Amanda Gorman read at Joe Biden's presidential inauguration, and you know, there are poems on the underground, poems on metro trains in different capitals to to ease the daily commute. But I think for public figures like politicians or business leaders, dropping a classical tag or an allusion to a famous ancient poem, that's kind of showing off. I think in the West learning the canon is something you do at school in a classroom.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's showing off in, in Chinese too, but it's showing off in a way that is respectable and appreciated. It doesn't have to be that you're doing it in a scholarly context. You could be a company boss, like toasting people at the year-end dinner and you drop a line of poetry in there. People are like, oh, he's educated. Like he is, you know, so much. He just made that reference. And of
3: course that can go the wrong way, right? Wang Xing, the founder of Meituan, the the company that sends all those yellow uniformed delivery drivers all over China. He managed to wipe 26 billion dollars off the stock market value of his company by quoting a Tang Dynasty poem in his blog which talks about an emperor killing disloyal scholars and burning their books. And although he later pretended that he was talking about commercial rivals, everyone knew that it was basically a dig at repressive policies under China's current ruler, Xi Jinping.
2: Mm, Yeah, so these references, it's like you don't even need to explain them. You just mention one line or the other. Everyone knows what you're talking about. And those kinds of poetic references are really prevalent in pop culture as well. So many of these poems are turned into songs that you sing at holidays, or you see them, you know, on TV shows, on game shows, where people are being quizzed. And anyone at any level of Chinese society is expected to know at least a little bit of poetry. So what you're hearing now is a game show, and this policeman is being quizzed on, you know, whether he can identify and rearrange the characters from that poem, Chun Wang. And you see that he gets really excited, and he's like, I got it, I got it, like, I, I know what this poem is. And of course, everyone in the audience also knows what it is. Everyone recognizes it because they all had to memorize it when they were children.
3: So we came to the idea of an episode on Chun Wang because our deputy editor, Ed Carr, wrote a Christmas piece about Tang Dynasty poetry and translating classical Chinese. The Christmas double issue of The Economist is one of the best things about working here because you get to write features that are about something that intrigues you or something you love. They don't have to have any connection to the news. So in my day, I've written a Christmas piece about Tintin comics.
2: Yeah, so it's really quite delightful that Ed decided he wanted to write about Tang Dynasty poetry. We decided to bring him on the show and ask him, you know, what got him interested in the subject and what was it like for him to come to these poems fresh, you know, without having encountered them the way that I did when I was young. Hello, Ed. Welcome to Drum Tower.
4: Thank you, Alice. It's great to be here.
2: You wrote this piece about Tang Dynasty poetry and whether it is still accessible to people who may not necessarily know Chinese. I'm really curious just to know, you know, what brought you to this subject?
4: This piece started out as an experiment, really. I knew that Tang poetry was seen by the Chinese as a pinnacle of their culture. Now, I don't speak Chinese, and when it comes to poetry, I'm really (laughs) strictly an amateur, so I wanted to see how this great art that was supposed to be the equal of Shakespeare or Goethe, how it worked for someone who was separated not just by language and culture, but 1,200 years of history. So I got lots of books and I took some on a holiday and I got some time off, I'm glad to say, and I read and I read and I read. And to my surprise, I found that the poetry wasn't just interesting and beautiful, but surprisingly accessible. And Du Fu, who wrote the poem we have, here and the one we're talking about today was often seen as the greatest. He was also my favourite and I I think this poem shows why because it's dramatic and it's about war and it's full of humanity and and even a bit of humour. When you first read the poem you think that's a bit kind of you know bathos you know here's this guy he's worrying about his hair when the country's at war and the more you think about it the more you realise that it's exactly what happens when you're feeling in a state of confusion and dejection and unequal to the catastrophe that's
2: happening around you. One of the remarkable things about this poem is the way that Du Fu manages to tackle these huge topics and then zooms in and zooms out, and he does all this with remarkable brevity, with just a few dozen Chinese characters. Do you think that that gets lost in translation?
4: The third and fourth lines in this poem, which are literally, moved by time's blossoms, sprinkled tears, hating separation, birds startle heart. And It's unclear in the Chinese whether the flowers have got tears on them, whether the tears are the poet's tears, whether it's dew that is a symbol of tears. And I think all of those meanings are there. They're kind of layered up. The Chinese is sort of very, seems to be very tolerant of these multiple readings.
3: And I bow to Alice, who studied this stuff at school, but it seems to me that Westerners want to engage with the poem themselves as a kind of personal journey, a sort of point of contact between their soul and the soul of the poet. But Alice, you know, you tell me, my sense is that in schools, these things are taught as, this is the poem that is about loyalty, or this is the famous poem that is about war. And it cannot be separated from this whole kind of structure of references and official authorised meaning. And so, you know, I wonder if, is that experience even the same experience when a Chinese reader read something like Fu.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, when I hear that poem, like, it's just so famous and it's cited in so many contexts and... It's like when, when you learn poems in schools in China or in other you know, Chinese societies, you get the poem when you're like six or seven years old and you know you have all the footnotes and they tell you things that you should know how to interpret the poem correctly and, and what it says. So like, for example, like this is a very patriotic poem, right? And it's very praiseworthy because this is a man who connects his personal sorrows, separation from family aging, you know, these kinds of things with the destruction of of the nation. I don't even know what that's like to, to come to a poem like this and have like no encyclopedia looming over your head.
4: I completely agree with you, Alice, that it's an amazing privilege, if you like, to come to these poems naive. You make of them what you will. They're completely fresh. You don't feel any of the burden That you do. And I compare it with sort of Shakespeare in English. You know, when you hear people read Shakespeare, they put on a silly voice and you, you know, the haths and thous and things sort of get in the way and you immediately know you come to the play or the sonnet, whatever it is, with sort of expectations. Well, you know, I came to this stuff completely open to it. One of the professors at Oxford I spoke to, Tian Yuan Tian, he explained all the allusions to me. He said, but, you know, I'm quite envious of you because this is, this is something I can't do. I can't just see this poem as if I'd never read it before. And you've got the whole, all of that poetry to come to if you want to, and it's all new to you. You're very lucky.
3: In Ed's Christmas piece, he chose a translation of Chun Wang by David Hinton. Let's hear that now.
2: So the title is "Spring Landscape." The country in ruins, rivers and mountains continue. The city grows lush with spring. Blossoms scatter tears for us, and all these separations and a bird's cry startle the heart. Beacon fires three months ablaze. By now, a mere letter's worth 10,000 in gold. And worries thinned my hair to such white confusion. I can't even keep this hairpin in.
4: I particularly like the last two lines where he says, and worries thinned my hair to such white confusion, I can't even keep this hairpin in. It's not particularly elegant in this translation, but the sentiment is fantastic because it's so human to be worrying about yourself when what's really happening is the country's falling apart.
3: There's a very brilliant scholar here in Beijing, Dong Dongqiang. He's the greatest living kind of Chinese translator into French. He is actually a professor at uh, Peking University. And he says that if the translator decodes everything for the reader in advance, it would be like chewing a dish before giving it to a gourmet and the poem would lack all flavour. But his worry is that that's actually a barrier, that it is one of the reasons why Chinese culture isn't as famous as Shakespeare, isn't as famous as Dante or some other European writers, that there's a kind of barrier of comprehension. Do you think that's right?
4: When it comes to translation, a really I found a really good place to start was a, a very slim volume called 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei by Eliot Weinberger. Weinberger points at some of the difficulties of translating Chinese. One of them is that a single character represents a noun or a verb and adjective. And modern Chinese uses, typically uses two characters to do each noun or verb, and, and that reduces the ambiguity. So the first thing is everything's very ambiguous. The second is that nouns have no number. So there's just rose, and it could be this rose or roses. It's all roses, in a sense, as well as this one. And very often there are no pronouns. So it's both the poet, but it's also everybody. And there are no tenses very often. It's just a verb. So it's was happening. It is happening. It will happen. The meaning floats. It's both specific and it's universal. And that's actually part of the poetry's strength. Now, if you look at this fascinating book by Weinberger, I think one of the things that comes across is there are lots of bad translations. And there are lots of mistakes that people make, often with the translator imposing too much of his or her kind of view of what the poem should be. But the other thing is that there are lots of good translations. There are many, many ways to translate a poem well. And when I was researching this, I spoke to Steve Owen, who had been a professor at Harvard and has probably translated more of Dufu than anybody. And he interestingly said that he translates a poem differently according to the audience. If he's writing it for, translator for a scholarly journal, he's very, very precise. And the beauty and flow of the language might suffer. If he's doing it for his students, he'll revise translations until he finds something that immediately appeals to them. There is no right or wrong translation. There are kind of
3: renderings.
2: Ed, thank you so much. Thank you, Ed.
3: There's been this huge debate over the years about whether scholars drawing on their erudition or poets kind of using their intuition make for better translators. And I think the classic example of that is the American writer Ezra Pan because he didn't know any Chinese and he was actually working off second or third-hand texts going through uh, Japanese into English. And he made some pretty serious mistakes When he was translating some famous poems. But that very sparse, spare kind of feel of Chinese poetry in his great collection, Cathay, really set the idea for many English speakers about how Chinese poetry sounds.
2: I think that's also what I like about poetry is that it's sort of a more generous field, right, where you're trying to make someone feel something the way that the original poem does. And, you know, if you're doing something like journalism, When we're translating, we want to be exact. But that's the difference between, I think, journalism and literature, right? There is more freedom in it and there's more graciousness in it. And in the Chinese, there's more ambiguity, which can make it more difficult or it can just lend itself to creativity and, and many different ways to translate. So we'll be back in a moment to look at some of the ways this poem still resonates in China. I'll be talking to a Chinese literary critic about some of the classical poetry that doesn't make it into the canon.
3: But first, if you're an Economist subscriber, you can read Ed's Christmas piece about Tang dynasty poetry and a whole lot more, including a really beautiful piece about how emigrants from one small corner of China have made an outsized mark abroad. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can find the best introductory offer at economist.com drumoffer drum offer. We're exploring one of China's most celebrated Tang Dynasty poems, Chunwang. I spoke to a former diplomat in Beijing who's now devoting his retirement to translating the complete works of Du Fu. Nicolas Chapuis was the European Union ambassador in Beijing until this summer. And I remember, you know, whenever there was a geopolitical crisis, I would get on my bicycle and cycle to see him at his embassy. But now he is in a village uh, in Burgundy, so Nicolas, who was posted in China many times since the 1980s as a French diplomat, he's now taking a very scholarly approach to this. And he said that Chun Wang is seemingly very simple, but is actually one of the hardest poems to translate because some of its most famous lines are really ambiguous. And I asked him to choose the hardest lines and he came up with the third and fourth lines of this poem. So Alice, you just read for us David Hinton's English translation. So it's the one where it says, blossoms scatter tears for us. And all these separations in a bird's cry Start all the heart. And actually, just to let listeners hear how incredibly austere the original characters are, if you do them absolutely literally, there's a literal translation by Pauline Yu where she's, she just writes out the characters and it says, Feel times, flower, sprinkle tears, hate parting, bird, alarm heart. And Nicola, he's written these amazing commentaries that go with his translations, and he makes the point in the commentary for Chunwang that the central question here is, is nature coldly indifferent uh, to the suffering of this wartime city and the poet? And so it's, he's crying because he's looking at the flowers. Or is nature somehow empathizing with him and the flowers themselves are crying? And this is something that poets and scholars and, and lovers of poetry have been debating for almost 2,000 years.
5: Well, this couplet that you just mentioned is one of the most famous in all of Chinese poetry, 2000 years of Chinese poetry, because it is, as you say, austere, very ambiguous. You don't know who is reacting to the times, to the moment. You don't know if the flowers cry, which, you know, literally it seems to mean that, but does it make sense? Have you ever seen a flower cry? And in Chinese poetry, flowers do not cry. So it doesn't make sense. And why do birds alarm the art? Are the birds uh, the subject? No, the poem that you are extracting this couplet of is a poem about a terrible time at the moment it is written. Dufu is alone, separated from his family because of a civil war. He's a prisoner in Chang'an, the capital, today Xi'an. And the war started during the winter. Spring is back there now. It's March, April. And what does he see? He sees that the state, the country, the dynasty has vanished. Uh, Rebels have taken over power. And the spring is back, and everything is normal. Vegetation is lush. But, he says two things which I think are crucial. One is, responding to what happenings. the flowers of the spring, the Chinese say, add the tears. Tian lei. And there's no other way to understand that than to, to say that the flowers make me cry. The flowers of the spring make me cry. They shouldn't be there. It is a tragedy. We should be mourning, you know, like in Ukraine today, you know, uh, when the spring will come back and the war is not over, will the flowers make Ukrainians cry?
3: Nicolas, in his commentary, he says that it is ambiguous, but actually in his own translation of this poem, he absolutely plumps for the idea that it's the flowers that are making doucheur cry. So in the, in the French uh, he says it's, you know, moved by the events, the flowers make me cry, uh, undone by separation, the birds uh, kind of tug at my heart. So in French, it's actually very beautiful, isn't it? It says, Emu uh, par les événements, les fleurs me font pleurer. par la separation, les oiseaux sont poignants. But if you take another really famous poet, uh, the Mexican Octavio Paz, who doesn't have any Chinese at all, was working off English and French into Spanish, and is actually quite an important source for Spanish speakers of Chinese poetry. He goes for a very much looser version. So he talks for the same two lines. He talks about these hard times, tears in the flowers. And then he says, the flights of the birds draw farewells. de estas horas, lágrimas en las flores, los vuelos de los pájaros dibujan despedidas. So it sounds beautiful, but it's a lot further uh, from the original Chinese.
2: Yeah, you know, when you're reading these translations, what strikes me is that when you take these lines out of Chinese, you're forced to make it clearer. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense. You have to assign a subject to it and say, the flowers made me cry. But to me, in Chinese, kind of part of the beauty of this poem is that it's not totally clear, right? Like you start with, with a verb. You start with gan. You start with like feeling and then you're like, who's feeling? And then you're like, who is crying? I really like Chapuis' explanation where he he's saying it's the flowers of the spring make me cry and it's a tragedy. And But, you know, I like it because that's how I read the poem. But I do know that this is actually still debated within Chinese. And even when we were preparing for this episode and I was watching, you know, cartoon videos of the Du poem, I saw all these arguments happening in the comments where people were saying, no, 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 it's not, you know, the flowers are crying. No, 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 the poet is crying. And so it's not totally clear.
3: So Alice, of course, there's one more bit of ambiguity, right? You you mentioned that at school, you know, you're taught it as this great patriotic poem that Dufu is worried about the country even as he's suffering himself. But there's another way of looking at it, that this is also a form of solace if you are unhappy about a bad emperor who is not running the country well in times of chaos and suffering. And I asked Nicolas Chapri, who you know, he has a lot of friends in China who are intellectuals, great scholars. He may not be that happy about the hardline direction of Xi Jinping's current rule and asked him, you know, what do they feel when they read this poem by Dufu, who wants to serve, who wants to be an official uh, in the imperial court, but his empire is falling to pieces around him?
5: This poem is considered as one of the greatest Chinese poems of all times, I've said. And the first two characters of this poem is the state is in shambles. And so many times in China, the state has been in shambles. And so how do you deal with that when you are a scholar, when, like Dufu, uh, you're supposed to serve your country? If there is no country, whom are you going to serve? And the sense of misery, of course, today, and I've talked with so many Chinese friends about that poem, they all read it the same, the tragedy of the Chinese intellectual, who has nothing anymore to rely on. He knows what should be done. Spring has to come every year. If the emperor is the son of heaven, as it should be in the Chinese tradition, then the emperor must allow spring to bring luxuriance and and happiness and love. And when he does not, then it is a time to call out his name, and this is what is happening in Beijing right now.
3: It has a distinct echo today when Chinese intellectuals feel grieved by the failure of their gua, their government, to bring about the spring, the chun that they wish for. Wang, you were in China in 1989, a really dark, dark time. You were very involved in helping people escape from mainland China to get out to Hong Kong. I think I'm allowed to say that. So you've lived through some very dark times in China. What does this poem mean to you?
5: It means that there are voices who can decrypt the times, 感濕, respond to the times, and the voice is so true to the heart of everyone that Du Fu's voice is still relevant today. This is extraordinary. For me, Du Fu embodies uh, the destiny of a Chinese intellectual. He uh, is, is that figure of a Chinese intellectual who wants to serve and just cannot serve. And China is so full of these people. In the Chinese tradition, going through more than a thousand years, you have this voice of Du Fu and some others who are telling the Chinese of today and us through translation, never lose hope. It's terrible, it's difficult, but it is possible to decrypt the times and to bring light in the darkness.
2: I'm really struck by this thought of, you know, yes, this poem is taught in a patriotic context, but the poem itself and Fu's message in it can also transcend the way that it's being used in schools, right? And it can also become a way for Chinese people today who, who feel that kind of sorrow about the direction the country is going. It can be a way for them to express that. And it's almost a, a safe way to express it. You're just like, I'm just quoting a poem.
3: Unless you're the Meituan boss, when your company loses tens of billions of dollars. Yes,
2: that is for true. quoting the so wrong So you do brain. have to be careful. And I think the other thing that strikes me about Chinese poetry and its ability to transcend is that yeah, it's not just limited to the way that the Communist Party wants to use it in schools in mainland China. It's something that is so much older and deeper in Chinese heritage. And it it means something to ethnic Chinese people, you know, all over the world in Chinese communities, you know, outside of China as well. And so, you know, I, I was speaking about that with Eileen Chow, who teaches Chinese and Japanese cultural studies at Duke University. She's actually from Taiwan, and she grew up learning poetry from her grandfather. And she was telling me how she kind of grew up in an environment where poetry just suffused Language And it's so deep in her that, you know, whenever she looks at the moon or at leaves changing colors, she thinks of all these Chinese poems that reference all those moments. So Eileen and I had this discussion about Chun Wang, and it was interesting because we had both learned it as children.
1: It's a brilliant poem, but it's shared a lot precisely because it seems to be about nationalism, right? It's about a kind of loss of a country. It's about the the personal subject who connects his incredible personal grief of being far away from home and to aging, you know, because the Baitho Salganduan is how it ends, right? That the nature around you is reflecting your sorrow. So everything you look at is equally sorrowful. And so I feel like this is almost like, it it hits all the notes. (laughs) It's it's one of those poems that has every element that we think of in terms of classical Chinese poetry. And then it also is a poem where it benefits a lot from biographical reading, right? So you know that Du Fu lives through, and he is... um, you know, his moniker in Chinese is Ai Guoxun, right? The patriot poet, right? The loyalist poet. He was someone who felt very fiercely about the dynasty and was kind of displaced. Everything is kind of embedded and interwoven with your own sense of grief, which is something that is considered a hallmark of tongue poetry, right? That, that nature and you are one. So you're always seeing your grief projected onto the world around you. The kind of indifference of, the natural world to your human pain is kind of the trope of Tang poetry, right? But in this poem, it's also the or that your pain suffuses the natural world so that it responds to you, right? And, either way,
2: and it's painful. It. Yeah, yes, precisely. <laughs> either, either like, oh, the natural world is so indifferent, or like, right, oh, right, I see right. my pain all over the natural world. And I do think that's an interesting thing, too, just about to think about Chinese culture and how so much of the poetry is suffused with melancholy and this kind of. Um, Ai Guo huai, right? Like this idea of, like, I can't be happy while my nation or my people are, are suffering.
1: But, you know, you wonder about that because, as you know, how do poems get passed down, right? Short of the, you know, carvings on walls, I mean, it's anthologizing, it's what's collected. But, you know, sometimes women's poetry there's a whole kind of minor tradition of kind of more sensual poetry, erotic poetry in Chinese tradition, right? But those are not things that people know as well or are not as translated as often.
2: Also they're not taught to children. Like right, to right, memorize. they're not taught to children <laughs> to memorize yeah. precisely.
1: You know, one of my favorite poems um by Li Qingzhao, who you know, the great Song Dynasty woman poet. People usually know her sad poems, but one of the poems I like is how basically she talks about how she and she goes out drinking with her friends or maybe by herself and then she gets lost on the way home, and the poem says, 真度,真度, like, how do I get out? How do I get out? shalu, uh, I startle a beach full of egrets. But I love that the poem is all about language, and when you get stuck, in poetry, it can metamorphose into birds, right? Maybe in real life, you're still stuck in your boat in this little sandbar, but in the poem, she's able to take your attention, look skyward, and the birds fly away, right? So poems are also about breaking these kinds of boundaries, you know, that might exist in real life. And, there's something really fun about those kinds of poems, but they're not as, you know, anthologized and translated.
2: Yeah, <laughs> which has to do with who's doing that anthologizing. Right, precisely.
1: So Du Fu is like the proper poet, you know, so.
2: You learn this and with it, you learn all the the proper feelings to have about being Chinese. and precisely. And, precisely. and it comes yeah. with all that. And we're not going to give you that other poem about being right. a, a woman and breaking free, <laughs> you know. <like> right, Precisely. <laughs> So when Eileen said this, she was referencing that same line of poetry we were debating earlier that has two ways of being read because it's not clear, right? If it's that the poet is so sad, the flowers are weeping along with him, or if it's that the poet is weeping when he sees the flowers because nature is so beautiful and so indifferent to his suffering. I was kind of surprised he said that because I had been reading it the other way, which is that the flowers are so beautiful, but that it hurts because I'm in pain.
3: I'm really glad Eileen got into the question of the canon and what's admitted and what's not. And as you know, Alice, one of the greatest things about uh, starting this podcast is we get so many fantastic emails from listeners. And um, we read all of them. We can't reply to all of them. But uh, we had a really lovely email from Canada asking about how Chinese poetry has shaped the Chinese psyche.
2: What an interesting question. And I think, and my takeaway from our discussion today is that there's this established traditional canon of poems, and there is a way that they are being taught, certainly in China in schools. But The poems themselves can also transcend those ways of teaching. And I think, you know, what's interesting to me and fresh is this idea of also people who don't speak Chinese and haven't received the poetry with all of that additional baggage. They can just come to the poetry directly through translation and take something away from it. But I do still think there is something really valuable and irreplaceable about hearing the original poem in its original language as it was meant to be heard. So let's listen to Chun Wang now in Chinese. This is our colleague, Chen Jiehao.
5: 春旺 shen Kan
2: It might be a little bit cheesy and maybe it's just because I've been brainwashed by watching so many childhood cartoons about sad poets. But immediately when I hear the poem, I I have this image in my head and I have this this feeling of, you know, someone who is filled with grief for the nation, someone who is looking at the beauty of nature all around him, but, but can't feel it. When I hear it in Chinese, it's accessing a whole different part of my memory and my identity. It's like the language of my family. It's the language of childhood. And it's almost like I'm a different person when I hear it in Chinese.
3: That's really moving. And as a foreigner who kind of struggles with my kind of mediocre working Chinese, clearly the music of that reading is so much more powerful than any translation. I have to say that we spent a lot of time talking about those you know, very powerful lines about the flowers. as a Not to get too personal, but as someone whose family lives outside China, the lines that really speak to me are the ones about him feeling that a letter from home is worth 10,000 pieces of gold. So thanks to all of you for listening and for sending us those emails, including a listener who wrote us a poem. We'll have more tower in January on our new release day, Tuesday. And to all our listeners in China... Please stay safe, and we're thinking of you.
2: This episode was edited by Poppy Sebag Montefiore with production help from Barclay Bram. Our sound engineer is Wei Dong Lin, and the music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. Our executive producer is Sandra Shmueli.